Welcome to Hope Floats, a social work podcast that aims to discuss social issues, social work practice, and other misadventures, which more than likely involve giving someone a bus pass. As a disclaimer, this podcast will discuss sensitive issues, which are meant to be thought-provoking and serve as a space to inspire other helping professionals learn, share, grow, and find common ground. Welcome back. You made it. You made it. Woohoo! We're so happy you decided to join us for our second official podcast episode. And we want to give a huge shout out to Romania and Germany for the one listener in each of those countries that accidentally listened to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no really? one no one saw that coming. No, no. <laughs> um, and we wanted to give a little shout out to my dad uh, for that very nice little guitar intro that we have in the beginning. Thanks, dad. Um, on this episode, we're going to talk about our firsts. And what we mean by that is a case... It's not what you think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not what you think. Um, a case that really challenged us and made us use our critical thinking skills, tested us emotionally, and really just tried our patience. Don't try us, for the record. Don't try us. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started. Let's do it. So I guess when we were thinking about doing this episode, it took me a while to think about um, what I really wanted to talk about because you have a lot of firsts in social work and we really wanted to have one that was like really super cool for our podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I thought it might be cool to talk about the first time that I had a patient that threatened a public official because... Um, it was a pretty high profile case in the hospital and I had a lot of eyes in administration looking at what I was doing. Um, and there was just a lot of things that needed to happen with law enforcement, um, you know, and just making sure that this guy um, had a safe discharge plan. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess the, the first thing to note is that uh, in the hospital where I work at on inpatient psych, we work uh, on teams. And what I mean by that is we work with specific psychiatrists, uh, nurses, and mid-levels. So we have the same consistent team and it's, it's really great because we know how each person works. And with this case, I had a different psychiatrist, <laughs> which can always be a production when you don't really work with someone very often and you don't know their style. Um, and this guy was really hysterical because he pretty much quit his job every Friday. Just show up in a suit and say he's going to quit. And then he didn't, for, but he did that for like six months. So, <laughs> um, so that kind of added to the fold with this story. So the patient that I was working with was in his 40s, had a long history of polysubstance abuse, and presented to the emergency room with acute paranoia, um, and then was admitted to my psychiatric unit where I work under an involuntary hold. He had made threats to harm others without verbalizing any specific plan or intent, or um, like who he wanted to harm. 
This patient, um, he exhibited a lot of personality traits commonly found in cluster B spectrum when he was starting to clear up from his detox. He had a long history of incarcerations and was currently on probation. Some protective factors for this patient included that he had a mother that was still involved in his life and a pension that provided him with some financial support. But he had more risk factors that were concerning for the team, which included a history of impulsive behaviors, violent crimes, homelessness, and other than his mom, he really just didn't have a lot of support. Um, And my job in the hospital as the social worker on inpatient is to really facilitate a discharge plan. And this guy, uh, as he was starting to clear up with his detox, he still really didn't have a very solid plan. He wanted to go to some shelter that was, you know, five hours from our hospital that had a long waiting list. (laughs) And he needed a referral for it, but you know, kept saying he didn't need one and then he didn't want one. So he had just a terrible plan. (laughs) Very unrealistic. unrealistic. And um, on the eighth day of his hospitalization, um, his cows and siwas were zeros. And the inpatient psychiatrist had signed him in as a voluntary patient because he was agreeable to staying for treatment. Um, well, before you go on, I know I don't really deal with this very often. What are, you said cows and siwas. So what is that again? So both are the scales used for detox. So okay. uh, siwa is the alcohol detox and then cows is for like opiates. Okay. So if you have a really high score on those scales, you're still detoxing really high. Okay, and so his scores were zero, he said. So he was totally Correct. done. Okay, gotcha. He was done with his detox. Um, and at that time, you know, he was still agreeable to working with his providers to get his medications at a therapeutic level. So he was there voluntary. So that is really important to note in the story because he had decision-making capacity and he had made the decision to stay and work with providers um and you know obviously he he understood what he was doing Mm -hmm. um so whenever i would like reapproach him to like talk about his plan he would become really agitated with Mm -hmm. me because he was very guarded and suspicious about people knowing what he was doing. And, um, you know, I guess for me, when I, one of the days after the eighth day, I, w- I was talking to him and he became so agitated with me, he started saying that he was going to hurt a public official. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like... By name, like, he was going to hurt this public official. And I explored with him, and he, he knew where this guy was going to be on a certain date. Oh, wow. he, didn't have, he didn't verbalize any specific plan for how he'd hurt him. Um, but there was definitely a, a threat there and some kind of plan in motion if he knew where this person was going to be. Um, so I took what I knew, you know, and I went and staffed this with the inpatient psychiatrist and 
It was Friday, so naturally he said he was going to quit. <laughs> um, and he was a really nice guy, but, you know, I, I just, I don't think he was made for impatient. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> um, so immediately, you know, I, I took action because um, any type of threat like that, there's a, a duty to warn, mm-hmm. protect, whatever that is for um, your local area. Um, so I contacted our local PD for support and the case was actually elevated to law enforcement in Washington, DC, which when they told me this, like, I really didn't think much of it. Like, I was like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not even weird. Like it it makes sense. But like being that this is the first time that's ever happened to me, I didn't really know what to expect. And, um... You know, later that day, I was working on my notes after, you know, I had made the report. And I got the, like, coolest call. Like, the coolest phone call I've ever gotten in my entire life. And (laughs) so I answer the phone, and this guy says, Hi, I'm Special Agent Norm Fury with (laughs) the Secret Service in Washington, D.C. And I am investigating a threat that you reported. I will never forget this moment in my life. <laughs> oh my gosh. And being that it's me, my first reaction to everything generally sucks. <laughs> so, and thank God this guy had a really good sense of humor. Because I was like, oh my God, you're Inspector Gadget. <laughs> and oh no. <laughs> And he was really great. He was really funny. Um, he's like, apparently you don't talk to us very often. I was like, yeah. never. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's um, crazy. So like, here's me like fangirling myself because <laughs> yeah. I'm talking to a secret agent. Yeah. Ooh. Um, so that was really cool. That's intense to get a call like that. It was. And after like that initial, like, you know, this is really cool, wear it up, like, wore off, um, you know, he obviously started, uh, you know, talking to me and, and questioning, like, what was happening with this case. Mm-hmm. And he must have asked me, like, t- in 10 different ways, like, if I thought this guy was going to hurt somebody. Oh, wow. Like, in my own clinical opinion, Like, did I think that this guy was dangerous? And that's a really intimidating place to be. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in doing some of the research for um, this episode, you know, I was looking at the Cornell University website and I found this this, uh, quote that I thought was, you know, it kind of summed up like what I was feeling at okay. the time. It it says psychiatrists today are still unable to accurate accurately predict the dangerousness of psychiatric patients. Mm. Even after we've put in all the duty to warn laws, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's different psychiatric you know questions and questionnaires to ask folks um, in forensic settings if they think they'll harm people. Um, but there's, there's no definite way to know. It's trying to predict the future essentially. And that's not something we're able to do yet. Right. (laughs) And I remember saying that to him, I said, you know, this guy has a long history of, um, 
you know, he has had some violent crimes in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very impulsive. But I can't predict the future. I can only tell you what I know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was like an interrogation. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you said he asked you ten different ways, so he's just... <laughs> I know. I'm like... No wonder you're in the Secret yeah. Service. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're really sneaky. <laughs> um, but, you know, and obviously we concluded the call um, and he wanted to speak with the attending psychiatrist. So um, I had transferred the call over to the psychiatrist who ended up speaking with um the agent and I ended up getting a call from our local PD afterwards saying this guy is going to be arrested from the unit. Um, so, Mm. and that was one of my first arrests from the unit too. And what's kind of wild about an arrest from a psych unit from our ward, we are not allowed to tell anyone that they're being arrested. So, um, I guess there's kind of like a feeling of being dishonest with your clients, you know, Um, which feels very, um, I don't know, like it's definitely like a conflicting kind of value for myself because you always want to be very honest with your patients because if you're honest and respectful, that's reciprocated in a therapeutic relationship. And then, you know, this guy just gets arrested from the unit and he had no idea. Yeah. Um, A little bit of like a betrayal almost. Yeah. You know, and this this happened a couple of years ago for me now. Mm -hmm. And this guy has never come back. Mm. I mean, he could very well still be in prison. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. But, um, but you, yeah, you would want to think that like that didn't prevent him from saying, "I I want to seek help again from this unit in particular." Yeah, and some of the research I was doing, like leading up to um, this podcast, was there was a lot of initial um, pushback to like duty to warn laws because mm-hmm. of the therapeutic relationship. And uh, a lot of psychiatrists at the time, you know, felt that that would ruin the therapeutic rapport, which it can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they they felt that they, um, like, it was just a violation, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. But anyways, you know, I guess uh, the thing that, like, I guess concluded this case for me too was... I told you that he had his mother involved in the case and she was like the sweetest lady ever. And I had talked to her initially, um, you know, before all this kind of went down and I couldn't tell her either that her son was getting arrested. Um, but I did ask her, I said, do you, do you think he would do this? Like, has he ever mentioned anything like this to you? And she said, no, no, Mm -hmm. I don't. And, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I had to call her after he got arrested, you know, and just tell her this is what happened. And, I mean, it was just silence on the other side of the the call, you know. And 
that was a very difficult conversation to have with somebody because he's been sick for a long time and his mom who continues to be supportive Mm -hmm. is just on the other line like she she told me she's like I don't even know what to do with this anymore you know yeah so it sounds like you were put in so many difficult positions during this case you know, you, you couldn't tell him he was going to be arrested. Now you have to tell the mother that your son's been arrested when she's calling to look for him. And and I want to ask you, you mentioned it felt intimidating. It was like the most intimidating thing to be asked by the Secret Service agent. You know, what do you think? Like, this is like the highest of the high, you know, yeah. asking your opinion. So how did that feel to, I mean, that's a lot of weight on you and that you, you hold a lot of... Um, of weight deciding this guy's future in a sense. So how did that feel to kind of be questioned like that? And, you know, did you kind of second guess yourself? Should, did you say like, Oh, should I have said this? You know, what, how did you feel in, in that? So like all the things, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Cause you always want to be careful, like, in a circumstance when mental health and the law kind of co- collide, mm-hmm. you know, because I feel like there's just so much gray area in where the law is and then where mental health begin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of the things that you, you know, read about duty to warn, it's patient rights end where, like, public peril begins yeah and for me when he was asking me all of these questions I just wanted to remain like factual and I remember saying to him I can't predict what he's gonna do yeah there's no way to do that but this is what I know this is his past history and You know, I I remember mentioning he had some protective factors, too, because in social work, we're strength-based, and, Mm -hmm. you know, not everything was bad in this guy's life, you know? Um, But it was very intimidating. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you kind of want to, like, really think about what you're going to say, because you don't want it to negatively impact somebody's life. Yeah. And, you know, either way it goes, like, if someone gets incarcerated, is that necessarily a bad thing for them? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I see this a lot on inpatient psych. Folks come in for detox, and because they've racked up a bunch of charges and stuff, they get arrested. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily the worst thing that could ever happen to them, because... Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of folks get sober in jails and yeah. prisons. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I still feel that way. It, it's, yeah. it's, you, you don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So, you just stay very neutral. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I can't even imagine that. And getting then, that call. <laughs> and then talking to his mom was, like, the worst part. Oh, yeah. You know, like... Because that's her baby. <laughs> I know. You know, like, I think about my mom. Mm-hmm. 
And like if she had to make that call for me, yeah, it would destroy her. Mm-hmm. You know, and and obviously, like you know, different families have different perspectives and all that stuff. But yeah. you know, she was very involved and wanted to see him get better. Mm-hmm. And I remember having that same conversation with her too. Like maybe this isn't the worst thing that could ever happen. Yeah, you know, um, he cleared up after he wasn't using he still wasn't making great decisions but you know if he has a longer period of sobriety Mm -hmm. that could be beneficial for him and I think almost I don't know if it's a mother's love (laughs) or um, maybe just their relationship but it's amazing that the mom is a protective factor because with someone with such you said violent uh, crimes in the past and substance abuse um, you know people have a limit even parents and so I know mm-hmm. you and I have both come across people whose fa- families are no longer in their lives because they burnt all these bridges and so I think it's it just says a lot about her maybe too that you know she's still in his life absolutely you know um she was definitely a strong lady yeah and that's not to suggest that folks that you know have boundaries with their yeah. their loved one that have substance abuse issues and things you know aren't strong because that takes a tremendous amount of strength to mm-hmm. set a boundary like that yeah but mm. i mean he just had so much going on yeah you know i, I don't know it's hard to sometimes imagine yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah. And I know, like, in terms of, like, thinking about empathy mm-hmm. for others, which we have to do a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I try to imagine what I would do in that predicament, and that helps me to have more insight about what I'm doing and maybe think about things through a different lens and... Mm-hmm ultimately try to help that person but you never really know Mm. and especially being inpatient unless you see them you know over time if they keep coming back you don't really have an idea of what happened to them in this case you don't know what happened you know he could be in jail he could be somewhere else he could have gone so far to the edge that you know he's not here he he could and it's you know, when you think of back to that experience or that uh, incident with him, you know, you hope that something positive has changed for him and maybe, I don't know. It's, yeah, to not know, I think is, that's, that's hard. I think that is probably the worst part about being inpatient. Yeah. Because, I mean, truthfully, I've had so many folks that, like, just bounce back every single month that... Mm. Essentially, I'm their assigned case manager. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but for guys like him, you don't know where they end up. Yeah. The only time you ever know is if they die. We get alerted when patients die within, you know, a certain amount of time. And mm-hmm. then there's, you know, an RCA, um, root cause analysis. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Where there's, like, a fact-finding about, like, well, what could we have done better, you know? And it's almost more, like, punitive, like, 
when it's like traumatic that someone died to begin yeah. with. And unfortunately, providers, especially the psychiatrists, get fingers pointed at them all the time mm. and saying, what could you have done differently? Yeah. And like, that's the whole premise of this whole thing. Yeah. Like, you can't predict patient behavior in the future. Mm-hmm. You just can't. I mean, there's clues that you could have an idea that someone could do something, but mm-hmm. you can't definitively say. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's always going to be that gray area mm-hmm. that I think is... Very and this difficult. one, I think, even more so because then this went to the Secret Service. You know, this wasn't just somebody who went back to the local, you know, homeless area. And, right. and you could see them again in the future. This went so far up the chain that yeah, you don't almost get any closure in a way. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, when I was thinking about this story, I did say to myself, man, I wonder what happened to him. Because mm-hmm. I don't think I'm ever going to know. Yeah. But like you said, you just hope for the best. Yeah. So. Mm. Good for a story. That was a wild first for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was that Secret Service agent. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is appropriate to say <laughs> on a podcast, but when I got off the phone with that guy, <laughs> I looked over at my coworker and I said to her, that guy... <laughs> Get so much pussy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would also like to announce that the the name of the Secret Service agent was not Mr. Norm Fury. So the name has been changed to protect his identity. <laughs> oh, man. That Norm is the name of uh, my cat, by yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who is a... Oh, he's a babe magnet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he is. But um, that's, yeah, that's, that is wild. I mean, that's a rare, rare thing to go through, too. You know, I, I just don't know that uh, a lot of folks have that experience. And, I mean, yeah. list, like, I would love to know other stories about this. Because mm-hmm. I... Other than my clinical supervisor that I was working with at the time, I have never met anybody else, like, in social work that has had that kind of experience. Yeah. So. I bet there's a podcast out there between two Secret Service agents that talk about cases like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I talk to this weird social worker <laughs> who said it was Inspector Gadget. <laughs> oh, man. Well... That's my first, and yeah. now I want to know yours. Oh, boy. Okay. We're going for it. Yes. So my first uh, is when I was working in the ICU at the hospital, and there was a patient who came in uh, who had been chronically homeless, diagnosed with schizophrenia, and was kind of right on the edge of having decision-making capacity which for those of you who don't know is when someone is not able to make a medically sound decision. Um, so in that instance, you look for someone, a family member, a next of kin to make those decisions. Um, and so when I was talking to him, 
trying to get some information. He had a brother listed in his chart. Um, and one day, the psychiatrist who was assessing his capacity said he did not want his brother contacted and then she took his capacity away saying he doesn't have a decision-making capacity so there was a really fine line of him saying well what time did he say don't contact my brother boom doesn't have decision-making capacity so do are we do we honor that do we say okay this he he was mentally sound when he said this mm-hmm. um so so that became a weird uh instance when i had to find someone uh, to make his medical decisions because now he, he can't make those himself so um the brother's phone numbers didn't work and i felt like i was at a dead end and so i was able to <clears throat> look back in his chart and find some other numbers, but nothing ever worked. And then he got intubated. So basically put on life support. So now he can't even talk. So we have to find someone. Um, And by chance, I said, I'm going to Google his brother's name (laughs) and see what comes up. What did people do before the internet? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know because... This guy's brother, I was, he popped up as like the second uh, thing on the list on my Google search has like a company and his name is in the title of the company. So it was just amazing that I was able to find him. But he lived across the country, the complete other side. So yeah, before the internet, probably would have never found this guy. Wow. So I call and he's like, oh my God. I have been trying to find my brother for 20 years. Wow. And I remember thinking just, what? And I'm now just calling out of the blue from across the country saying, he's here. Um, And so he was just so happy to hear that. And um, he asked me about him. And so I was able to give him some information and let him know, you know, he's intubated. We need someone to make medical decisions. And he says, absolutely. Can I come see him? And I'm just like, well, he's, he's intubated right now. You, you wouldn't be able to, essentially. You could physically see him. Um, and so he's like, okay, I want to come out there. I'll let you know when I'm coming. And I said, okay. So I told the medical team, we've got somebody, you know, to go through him. So then he gets extubated. So now he's breathing on his own. He's awake. But he still doesn't have medical decision-making capacity. Um, and I would talk to him just to, cause even though someone doesn't have medical decision making capacity, doesn't mean you still can't talk to them and still learn something. So I wanted to be like, okay, what's going on with the brother? What's, and he, he really didn't give me much, but, um, just that he, he doesn't talk to him anymore. Didn't want to talk about him. So I just left it at that. Um, and so the brother calls me, says, I'm coming this day. I'm bringing my son and uh, hopefully we can see him. And I said, yeah, he's extubated. We'll see what happens. So the day he arrives, they, the psychiatrist says, oh, he's got decision-making capacity now. And 
I said, okay. So I told the patient, your brother is on his way here. And he's like, I don't want to see him. And my heart was just breaking. I thought, no, (laughs) you have to. He's flying across the country to come see you. He hasn't seen you in 20 years. And so I was just like, well, we'll we'll just see what happens when the kid gets here. So the the brother gets there with um, the patient's nephew. And I had to tell him the horrible timing of it that he now can basically say, I don't want to see this person. And so I told him, you know, he said he doesn't want to see you. And he's like, okay, I understand. He didn't put up any kind of fight. And he said, what about my son? He hasn't seen my son since he was like five years old. And I was like, okay, me. So I went in and I asked him and he's just like, no, I don't, I don't really want to see anybody right now. And again, I'm just like, oh my God, really? Like if only, you know, we could swap shoes and he could see what's going on just outside the curtain, you know? And, um, so I told them and they, they were very okay with it. Um, cause understandably it, it had been 20 years, you know, you can't expect him to just jump back in and say, yes. I missed him as well, you know? So uh, they ended up leaving, uh, but they were able to come back in town another day. Um, and then after a little while, he, um, he medically improved uh, and went up to the medical floors, but then started declining overall. And so uh, hospice was consulted. And I had gone up to talk to him and I was just so curious, like, what on earth happened between these two brothers? And so I asked him, I said, well, you know, you have a brother. You told me you don't talk anymore. What happened? And he said he had been living on, um, like, subsidized housing, and he needed $50. And so he asked his brother, hey, I just need $50 for whatever it was. And he said, his brother said, no. I'm not giving you $50. So the patient wrote his brother a letter and said, I'm never talking to you ever again. What? $50? $50. And I mean, it felt like it took all of me to hear, to hear him and looking at him as he's telling me this to just, you know, cause you want to agree and be like, wow, yeah, that sounded difficult. But I was like, um, that seems like you're throwing away your family over this. But once again, he's diagnosed with schizophrenia. And, you know, the, the impact that that has on uh, interpersonal functioning and family functioning, I mean, that it itself was, that was the disease talking, you know? It sounds like, too, like there was a lot of conflict, like, for yourself, like, with your own values. Yeah. You know? Like, what was that like for you? Like, in that moment when you heard that? just sad and a little bit of anger like $50 you know that there had to it seems like either there was more to the story or that's just really the illness I don't know it was just so sad just really sad that somebody would end a relationship with a family member a brother over that um and so then unfortunately he kept you know declining and we talked to the brother because now he's uh on hospice or talking about hospice the brother agreed to um to have him go to hospice because it's just 
it was, you know, nearing the end for him, unfortunately. And oh, so he transferred to the hospice house. And uh, when someone, as you mentioned earlier, when someone passes away, we get a notification in the chart. And so I was working one morning and I saw that a notification. <laughs> and I immediately, I said, I have to call the brother. Like, this is, this is so sad. So I call the brother and he says, they called me. I was on my way. I flew from across the country, landed at the airport, and he was on his way to the hospital when the hospital called and said he died. And my heart just broke again. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I felt like I was trying to connect these two brothers um, and it just kept missing. And so that was really hard because I felt like I had just, I'd, I'd worked so hard to find the brother, to get them connected, to try and hear each side and, you know, mediate them and bring them back together. And it just didn't work out. And it was just so terribly sad that that's how it ended. Like, you know, there was no closure. Right. And I guess not every story is a Cinderella story. Yeah. You know, and I think we get a lot of cases like that too. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you reconcile that for yourself? Like, after, you, after this whole thing went down, like, what were your afterthoughts? I think, I mean, I definitely thought about my own family a lot and thinking to not have that closure, to not have that family, to not have my parents or my brother. I don't know. I don't know. It, it made me just feel really bad, really sad, you know, once again, that this is how it ended. This it's not the ending I wanted. I wanted a Cinderella story. <laughs> I wanted to connect these two brothers and, and make them realize they needed each other, you know? And I think that was a really harsh awakening for me um, because I have my family, <laughs> my immediate family, my parents and my brother, to me is perfect. We have the most ideal, like, family. And... I haven't had too much experience with broken families or this instance where it's super estranged. And so I was like, well, I have this, you can too. And mm. that you just can't think that way. Um, and so it really just challenged my, my own view of families and, and sometimes what it means to to sometimes set a boundary and step away from a family member, right. as we were talking about earlier. Um, but it was, I think it was just really disheartening to, to see how that ended. Because maybe the brother, he was hoping, it seemed like, you know, he flew back from across the country to maybe to get closure, to, to finally say what they hadn't been able to say to one another. I don't know. Right. But it was just really, just, yeah, I did, that's not how I wanted it to end. But... Not my choice. <laughs> you know, and thinking about both stories, I think, like, the 
the things that I take away are really the things that you learn initially in social work school mm -hmm. about how important informed consent is mm -hmm. and how important self-determination is. And then learning how to separate yourself from your patients. Yeah. You know, like both of our folks didn't have the ability to consent for what they wanted mm -hmm. at some degree during their stay in the hospital. And then they did. Yeah. And what they did with that <clears throat> conflicts with our own values. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's always challenging because you just want to shake somebody sometimes. Yeah. It's like you're... You're doing something that's really bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't see that. And, you know, it's it's hard to be in that very supportive um, space mm -hmm. and not judge somebody for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know when we were reviewing uh, for this podcast and talking about our stories, you had asked me about how do I reconcile self-determination and capacity. Mm -hmm. And... Because in, in, my, in my case, the patient, right on the cusp of having his uh, capacity removed, said, I don't, don't call my brother. Right. <laughs> so there was still that hatred and dislike for his brother after 20 years of not seeing him, not communicating at all. Um, and so do you honor that? You know, obviously we didn't because we had to find someone. Um, I mean, if his brother had said, no, I don't want anything to do with him, that's another story. Um, and in this case, I remember talking to the psychiatrist and saying, well, you said he didn't want to talk to his brother at 10 o'clock, but at 9.45, you say he didn't have capacity. <laughs> so which way do I go here? Right. And in this kind of case, you know, you just want to not give everything away, you know, respect as much as you can right. of his wishes, but when you need a decision made, if background information has to be given, you know, you, you're able to, to tell that. But that, that's hard because like, you just want to shake them and say, ah, listen, <laughs> I almost know what's better for you in this case, you know. But you have, to, you have to honor that even if they make a bad decision, it's their bad decision to make. And it sounds like his brother was so understanding. He was. You know, did he give you the sense that he had closure, like, when you were last speaking with him? Um, I, I mean, I vaguely remember him saying, you know, I lost my brother a long time ago. He had told me that um, he had fought in Vietnam, and when mm -hmm. he came back from Vietnam, he was just totally changed. Um, and so I think that's kind of when everything started between the, like the estrangement beginning. Um, so it was almost a case of, he hasn't been my brother for a very long time. So perhaps closure in the sense that I'm looking for isn't what he was looking for. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if he, if he felt like he did or not. I don't, I don't recall feeling that way. It was just more of a, I'm happy that you... I, he was happy that I was able to contact him, I, that I was able to find him and mm -hmm. at least let him know he's not on the street somewhere. He's, he's here with us. He's safe. Maybe he doesn't have to worry about his brother anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
So those were those were heavy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, um, one of the things that I wanted to um, just mention is a lot of the duty to warn laws and duty to protect laws and informed consent guardianship um, laws are different in every state. Mm-hmm. So I want to encourage folks to, you know, check out the laws in your jurisdiction where you are um, so that you're able to, you know, really make those decisions when yeah. you have cases like this. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's important, you know. And, it is. Um, understanding informed consent. I remember in school and then learning about advanced directives I was like oh who cares you know (laughs) (laughs) and in both of these cases that were just heavy Mm -hmm. and hard and interesting like that played a major part in what happened yeah and what decisions needed to happen next Mm -hmm. so yeah. I am. Um, we're going to have a link in our description for a lot of the different duty to warn laws um, in each state. Mm-hmm. In uh, the United States, um, for folks in Romania and Germany, <laughs> I don't know where to find yeah. those, but I'd encourage you to look, look in your local area. Yeah. <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, and I think too, uh, it's funny how I'm telling a story about more of a mental health issue when that's typically not what I deal with very often. That's more of what you deal with on inpatient. So, um, even preparing for, for this podcast and my story, I had to even like look up, you know, statistics on schizophrenia and, um, really I, I tried to focus the looking up uh, the family dynamics and and that's kind of one of the things is the fam- the burden on family members um, uh, one website it came across it's a uh, like skiz now scznow.com kind of just like a, an informal website that just has a lot of facts about schizophrenia um, but it mentions that with schizophrenia in particular the age that's that males um, begin developing schizophrenic features is right at like the end of the teenage years, early adulthood, mm-hmm. right at the time when they're supposed to be blossoming on their own and coming into their own person. And their, their parents are almost like, you know, ready for the empty nest, ready for them to take flight on their own. And then it kind of reverts. And now the family, instead of their child flying out of the nest, now they're they're there all the time and they require so much care and the impact on families is just enormous really is enormous there was a really good book that i read called (laughs) (laughs) hidden valley road and it was on oprah's book club um but it talks about this family i think i mean they had like 10 children and about seven or eight of them all had schizophrenia and it was the most interesting book about like the family and all everything they went through so I would encourage anyone who's interested in reading more it's called Hidden Valley Road by uh, Robert Kochler so 
to sum this episode up, we want to acknowledge that, you know, we talked about some wild and interesting and sad things. And it's important to take care of yourself. And because uh, personally, after telling that story, I feel a little like down. So it's important to practice self-care. And uh, what do you like to do for self-care? How do you, how do you take care of yourself? I like to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Like nothing. 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 <laughs> <laughs> do you just sit on the couch and stare? I I sit on my couch and I have my three animals and they always like sit on top of me and I mean I have two sixty pound dogs. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then I like a weighted blanket. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I binge watch whatever I feel Mm, like, yeah, you know, um, but I like to do nothing, you know, um, I feel like I spend a lot of time planning for other people's Mm -hmm. life, so I like to not have any plans, Mm. and, um, that's always really good for me. Yeah, and I... I hate not having plans. <laughs> like on the weekend, <laughs> I'm like, hey, husband, you know, what do you want to do? And he's just like, nothing. I don't want to do anything today. And I'm like, but I, I need like five things to do. <laughs> um, but when, you know, when I need to kind of take a few steps back, I binge watch Harry Potter. I know we're big Harry Potter fans. Yes. That's yes, just, we are. That's just a go-to uh, at least once a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like taking baths. Mm. baths are good um and just being outside like uh sitting on my porch with a nice breeze just sitting there whether I'm looking at my phone or just playing a game or something Mm. just totally getting my brain out of this world just disengaged yeah that's always a good thing so our advice is to take care of yourselves because these were some heavy cases but we know for folks listening You've either had a case like this this week or recently or, you know, you're going to be a social worker and, you know, you're going to have cases like this. Yeah. So getting into good habits is always really important. Mm -hmm. So we want folks to take care of themselves and we would love to know what you guys would like to hear on our next podcast. Yeah. So, um please let us know on our Instagram page. Yes, our Hope Floats uh, podcast Instagram page. Let us know. And uh, I guess we will see you next time. We'll see you next time.